governance challenges in Africa. In Africa, as with the rest of the world, high-profile corporate scandals generated increased interest in corporate governance. Furthermore, companies in Africa are becoming international players in both their operations and sourcing of capital. So the need to meet listing requirements of foreign exchanges and appeal to international investors has elevated the importance of corporate governance in Africa. Given the generally favorable economic growth expectations in many African countries where corporate governance is still a relatively new development, it can be argued that Africa has an advantage as they do not have all the legacy issues and can develop new governance frameworks that are truly fit for the 21st century. Despite the introduction of new corporate governance codes in African countries with rapidly growing economies, corporate governance failures persist in many of these countries. This podcast will explore some of the challenges and opportunities faced by countries in the development and implementation of corporate governance systems and the role of regulation and private sector in facilitating the process. I'm delighted to talk with Tinuade Ave, Chief Executive Officer of NGX Regulation Limited, an independent regulatory subsidiary of the Nigerian Exchange Group PLC, formerly known as the Nigerian Stock Exchange, which is licensed by the Securities and Exchange Commission to provide regulatory services within the Nigerian capital market. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. BetterBots clients have access to an innovative digital platform that provides data and comparisons on all dimensions of effective boards and can use the platform for the internal as well as part of the external board evaluation. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. You know, it's a real honor to have you contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. So thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule. Thank you very much, Sabine. It's a real pleasure to be here, to have this time to speak to you and connect with your viewers. It's lovely. Let's jump straight in. In the preparation for this podcast, you described the challenges of a regulator. And I found this most interesting because most of our podcast partners are on the receiving end of what regulators do. And we hear so often what they think. So it's absolutely brilliant to have actually hear from the other side, so to speak. There are many, many challenges at the moment when it comes to governance. And one of the big concerns of directors, as you know, is that they have to spend more and more time on governance issues rather than the real business issues. What's your perspective on this? If that's very interesting. And, you know, I used to be a lawyer in my prior life and so used to advise regulated entities. And certainly I thought as well when I was on that side that we're spending all this time on things that don't really matter to the bottom line. And now crossing to the other side, I realized that part of the issue is that both sides are not connecting to see the full picture. So the regulator sees one side and the regulated entity sees the other side. And so there has to be greater interaction between them. 
first of all, the regulated entity, I think, needs to acknowledge that they are doing business in an area that has some governance regulation. And as I always say, you can do business in areas that don't have that type of requirement. But if you are in that area, then you have to expect and you have to know that there would be some governance. I think also regulators need to realize that when you're a regulator, the relationship is not equal. And so one of your responsibilities is not necessarily to make that relationship equal, but to ensure that you are engaging and you're getting an understanding of why you're doing things. You don't keep talking from on high because you're not the entity that is subject to this regulation. So it's that engagement that helps you to know, that helps you to feel the pains, and that helps you to decide which of the many arsenals in your tool, your regulatory box, you should use. In certain instances, are you going to use a principle so that it's scalable and flexible and easier, so to speak, for the regulated entity? Or are there things that you need to use a rule and it's more mandatory and more thou shall do X because of the importance of what you're trying to do. I think it's that fine balance while you keep your stakeholder engagement keen and you're on the ball as to when do I change to another arsenal? When do I use the carrot? And when do I use the stick? And when do I use something that has a little bit of carrot and stick? I think another thing that is important, particularly from where I stand, coming from Nigeria and uh, in Africa as, as a whole, is capacity on both sides. So capacity of the regulator to understand what appropriate governance remits, mandates to make for the regulated entities, and also capacity from the side of the regulated entity to understand what is required. Don't just see a requirement and, you know, get all flustered because, oh, it's just another thing from the regulator. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these things are actually good for you. I know because there's always a different mix. It's like vegetables. Some regulated entities are like carrots, some are tomatoes, some are lettuce. And it's difficult for a regulator to make something for the different entities. So if you are a regulated entity that's a carrot, you have to understand that you are not the only one in the market. There's lettuce and there's tomatoes as well, and the regulator is dealing with all of them. So having that capacity to comprehend the market also from the regulated entity's side, I think is very important. I think the final thing is that for many regulators in African countries, there's also a developmental remit. And so that adds another bit Mm -hmm. of burden on the regulator. I'm developing this market. Is X that I do, would it have the effect of developing or will it have the effect of killing the market? And that engagement I spoke about is so important in trying to figure that out. If you would classify, what are the top three challenges you're grappling with at the moment as a regulator in Africa? And how do you think does this differ from what your colleagues in the Western world face? I think one of the things is multiple layers of regulation for the regulated entities. And so sometimes you have different regulators and each of them wants to impose certain obligations and each of them is acting within its own tough 
and its own uh, sphere of mandate by the legislative enactment that sets up that regulator. And I think regulators are already collaborating, but I think there should be more collaboration so mm-hmm. that an entity that is in the business of doing its business, you know, entities don't go into business because they want to be regulated or they want to be well governed. They go in Certainly because not. they want to do the, <laughs> they want to do the business. I, so I think regulators need to understand that you know all of these regulations come in on the regulated entity. So there's that resistance from the regulated entity. So I think more collaboration amongst the regulators because of those multiple regulations. There's one, and I have to be careful the way I talk about this. I think there's also a socio-cultural issue. One of the underpinnings of good governance is transparency and disclosure. Now, what I find is that Nigeria is a multi-ethnic country. And so, you know, we have several different cultures and also working in different parts of Africa, there are different cultures everywhere you go. But I think one of the common threads that I have observed is that there are many cultures, there's a sense of keeping what is yours to yourself. Let me explain Mm -hmm. that a bit. So if I transpose that into, for example, somebody in the Western world, and I lived in a number of Western countries for a while. So it's not unusual. You go to coffee with somebody and, you know, there's a friend that you don't know very well. You're just meeting the person and you can have a conversation, a whole conversation, for example, about how that person's mom has a terminal illness. Now, in my culture, it's completely unacceptable to have that kind of conversation. Even your close friend may not know that mm. you are dealing with such a problem. Now, in my opinion, and you can test this, Sabine, but I believe that a little bit of that cultural subtext has sipped into the corporate culture as well. Yeah. And so yeah. you have folks who don't want to say what is happening in the company. Not because they're trying to do anything wrong, not because they're trying to be to be fraudulent or, you know, there's anything they are covering up a huge plan to defraud the entire public order. No, it's just that culturally, why do we need to talk about that? Why do we need to say that? Why do we need to disclose that? And so you're dealing in that cultural subtext that doesn't value or doesn't believe that that type of disclosure is necessary. Which is fantastic, you know, that you actually explain this cultural context because the perception from a Western point of view is just, oh, they are corrupt. Yes, and that's why when I started talking about this, I said (laughs) I have to be very careful because it's a delicate issue, but it's there. Obviously, you have people that are corrupt and you have them in every culture. But you also simply have people who are running their businesses. And one of the things that is annoying to them about the whole issue of governance is the idea that they have to keep talking about what they're doing. And, you know, they say to you, why does governance require this level of disclosure? Why do I have Mm. to say this? And then not every regulator also is keen on that type of disclosure. Because some regulators just want to do their work with you. So you have a regulator maybe regulating a particular area that a company just wants to get into. Maybe they need a license from that regulator. 
And from a governance perspective, especially where you have dispersed ownership, you're saying it's material that we want to hear about what you're doing, especially if you're a listed company. Is it material that you're going to be going into this area of business, that you're going to be using some of these funds that you've taken from the public into this area? And you sometimes find the company struggling because they're saying, I don't think that regulator wants the entire world to know that mm. I am considering getting a license. So, you know, I think it goes back to my first point about regulators collaborating more themselves to send clear messages to the regulated entities about where the contours of governance will be. That's I think big, those yeah. that are, I'm sure as we speak, you know, other things will come up. You spoke about the specific challenges. And at the same time, I mean, you have a tremendous chance in Africa, actually, to build on what has been done in the developed countries. You can learn from what has been working and what has not been working. Can you name maybe some examples where you have consciously decided to do things differently? Yes, I think actually we do more similarly than we do differently on a general note because you don't want your market where everything looks like the head of an elephant. You don't want your market to look like the head of a lion because it's just not what everybody's used to. And then you have to explain that. So let me make that as a first point. But there are times when in thinking globally and acting locally, you do make those exceptions. And one of the things I can think of is just even the company I work for. So the exchange, we had the Nigerian Stock Exchange and it demutualized and became this company called Nigerian Exchange Group PLC. And the company I head is a subsidiary of that company. Now in demutualizing, if you look around the world and there have been several demutualizations around the world, you would find that there's always a concern about putting the regulatory function, you know, making it Chinese world, ensuring its independence and, and, and all the whatnot. Now in deciding what to do with the Nigerian Stock Exchange, we decided that we wanted to have a company that will actually be a separate company with its own separate board and no interlinked boards with the other board members, with the other parts of the group, a separate management that reported to that board and its own strategy, obviously tying into the group strategy in a fashion, but we wanted that independence. And one of the reasons why we chose that vehicle, which is a more expensive vehicle, as you can imagine, was because we felt that we wanted to put a stamp of that independence and regal around that vehicle. Now, if you look at a lot of exchanges around the world, however, case in point, for example, if I use Africa, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the regulatory function is within the exchange itself. Chinese world and very secure, and the JS is well known for the independence of its regulatory function, but it's part of the exchange. And so we chose this because one, we were concerned that we wanted to ensure that everybody knew that this is an independent company. Everybody knew that this is independent regulation and there was no idea that its decisions could be subsumed under business considerations. It is not that you don't have other companies like this in the world. You have one in Singapore, you have one in, in Japan, and you have one in Brazil, but they're few and far between. So in that 
sense, we were going against what most of the world had done. And indeed, if you look at those three examples, they're not in Western Europe or in the US. They're actually in Asia and uh, South America. And, um, you know, I don't know the reasons why those decisions were chosen there, but that was an example for our market that we thought would work better for our market and would give the necessary cachet and reputation to the regulatory um, function. Now, another thing that we've done is, again, it's not that we're the only ones, but in deciding how we wanted to dimension our market, we have the normal dimensions that you have in other markets, but we decided that there were certain things about our economy that required us to have a growth board, a company, a, a board that is for growing companies. And then even further, we're in the process of creating a technology board. So again, technology, because if you look at the stories out of Africa, stories out of Nigeria, there's quite a bit of investment by PE firms, uh, VC firms in technology companies that have come out of Nigeria, that have come out of Egypt, that have come yeah. out of Kenya, for example. And in fact, in Nigeria, we have five unicorns already that started off in Nigeria. And so we said, there's something about this air that attracts technology, despite the fact that it's a developing country and some of the conditions that may be challenging to businesses. So let's try and attract them and not have a general board. Let's have a board that is for technology and that board is in progress. So those are two examples in our market where they're not necessarily, we've done something that other people haven't done, but it's not a widespread. And when we were doing them, we did them because we were looking specifically at this market and wanted something for this market. On the whole, however, we tend to look at what works in other places and then domesticate for our market. What do you think? What are the factors that influential in advancing the development of corporate governance in Africa? I think we have a very youthful population in Africa. And I think they're also digital natives. And because they're digital natives, have access to digital sources of information. Mm -hmm. And so they're a serious bulwark saying, we want X, we want Y, we want the disclosure, we want to know what you're doing. We want companies that are well run because we can see what happens in other countries. We can see how governance is helping to improve the economies and giving opportunities to youth like us in other countries. So I think, and that combination of the youth and the democratization of technology is one block that is certainly important with respect to um, the furtherance of corporate governance. I think the other one is the role of governments themselves in trying to attract funding and realizing that one of the ways that you can attract funding is actually to have certain levels of governance in your country. So if you look around Africa, there are more and more countries that having principles-based codes. So you mm. have Nigeria, you have Kenya, you have South Africa, you have Egypt, for example, that all have principle-based codes. In the case of a country like South Africa, 
that has actually gone through a number of iterations and um, South Africa becoming known as a country for corporate governance with all the work that has been done around the King Codes, for example, and yeah. as an example for others around Africa. Mauritius too has a principles-based code. And a lot of these initiatives are not necessarily led by the private sector. They're led sometimes by the government itself saying, we need this. So in Ghana, for example, recently in December of uh, last year, the IOD, which is obviously the Institute of Directors, obviously a private body, was very key to facilitating looking at some of the brownfield codes that they had already and some of the listings rules and coming up with a new code that has now been released for comment, a principles-based code as well. So the governments are very, very critical. Sometimes also it's the companies. So the companies are also going out and finding that there are certain demands being made of them, especially when they're trying to seek foreign capital. And they are then saying, if I have to comply with this, it becomes more expensive for me to do business, more expensive for me than a fellow company that doesn't have to comply. And so regulator, don't you really think that you should be looking at this group of us and trying to come up with something? And when you come up with that something, that code, that announcement, that circular that says this is what you are requiring or that is what I'm requiring, it also helps me to market myself, particularly yeah. to that foreign investment to say, look, I am regulated and this is what my regulator requires. Is it equivalent to what you are looking for in X country? And so that we find that that is also moving corporate governance. So it's a kind of like a selfish motive in the sense that, oh, the cost of business has become higher for me before I, I received the benefits, which is that investment I'm looking for. But now the cost of business is higher. As we know, Sabine, governance is not cheap. So yeah. it's higher than X, which is a competitor, regulator or government. Can you therefore raise the standard so that all of us have that additional burden and I'm not the only one. So I'm still competitive and I get the benefits I'm looking for. So we've seen that pool as well. You know, so there are various things, factors that are leading to this movement around Africa and this talk about governance and do. It's not only talk, it's a talk and do about governance around Africa. Clearly, you also have the influence of the development financial institutions like the IFC, FSDA Africa, mm. that have an Africa focus and are trying to encourage companies to do better governance, to be better because of their own belief that when you have better run companies, it inures to the benefit of the economy as well. And so, you know, all those political economic classifications around whether you are a least developed country, you know, all of those classifications, um, Sabine, I'm not going to go into that, but trying to lift people out of those entities, countries, sorry, out of those classifications as well. Corporate governance is often viewed as this annoying tick box exercise where a set of rules are basically ticked off and there are checklists and the systematic problems are not really being addressed. How can regulators ensure that corporate governance is more than that, particularly in the context of Africa where you're building things up? 
Yes, I agree with you that unfortunately, sometimes corporate governance just becomes a box ticking exercise. Do you have a chairman who is not the CEO tick? Do you have an audit committee tick? Mm -hmm. And you're not really spending as much time on is the board effective? Are the governance processes through the company effective? And do they therefore turn out a better run and therefore more profitable company and all, all the things that one would expect? That is certainly there. I think, however, that there's a time for everything. If you're trying to break into corporate governance, assuming you have a country where it's completely greenfield, there's no corporate governance in that country, you might want to have bright lines that help people to just get accustomed to what governance means and just doing governance, you know, because I see corporate governance as a continuum and none of us ever gets to the destination, right? So at the start, you may want to say, just do those things. This is a list of things you need to do. And every quarter or every year, I want to see the box ticked, okay? Now, if you're on a journey, you can then say, at some point, I want it to be more principles-based. And when it's principles-based, so I'm an advocate of principles-based corporate governance, because really with principles-based, you have the scalability and you have the flexibility. And that scalability and flexibility helps to moderate the frustrations that a company may feel because it gives them some level of ownership, some level of control as to how they will meet the requirements of the principle what they will do, as opposed to this is what you must do. And it also helps them to fashion out something that works for their size of company. So for example, you say every company must have five independent directors and you know, you're box ticking. And of course you box tick because the company is not going to really confess to you that these directors, about four of them are actually not independent. All right. So If, however, you're principles-based and the principle is talking about the benefits of independent directors and, you know, how you have to have an appropriate mix and all all the things you'd expect in a well-drafted principle, you're more likely to have companies willing to comply than if you just said X and do it no matter the size of company you are, no matter how expensive it will be, just do it. So I think that move from rule-based to principle-based helps the moderate the box ticking. I think also if we move away and regulators use more of the tools in their arsenal, a regulator has a lot of tools. So you have tools that range from a fat money, civil money penalty to a warning to naming and shaming, to coming to speak to your board because you guys don't seem to understand what's going on here and what is required of you. So I want the board to actually know this is serious. I'm actually making an appearance there and so on and so forth. I think that if the regulator engages with those different tools, and sometimes those tools may also not even be one-on-one tools. They may be the engagements you do in the market, regular interactions and engagements that you have with the entities that you have the regulatory authority over and you're dictating what kind of governance that they're supposed to have. 
There's something that we do, we call it substantial engagement, where when a company does not comply, our first thought is not that the company doesn't want to comply. It's to engage with the company as to why is there no compliance. And so sometimes we will then do, instead of a penalty, we will do a mandatory compliance training that basically is focused on you mm. as a company and what is your challenge and why you're not doing X or you're not doing Y. So I think, again, those types of one-on-one where you're dealing with the problem in that company and their difficulties with compliance also help the company to understand better and lead to less box ticking. I think some of the different other things that you're supposed to do as well, the governance audit, if it's taken seriously, the evaluation, if it's taken seriously, and there's actually an implementation plan that leads to the effectiveness of the board and the effectiveness of the governance processes within the board, you're likely also to get less of the buck ticking and more of the inhabiting of the DNA of that company around corporate governance. Thank you so much. We have to come to an end. What are the three things our listeners shall take away from this podcast? The first thing I would like our listeners to take away from this podcast is that corporate governance is global and there's no African corporate governance, Western corporate governance. There are certain immutable principles that apply everywhere. And in looking at companies from wherever they are around the globe, you should have a certain expectation of certain principles that you would expect to see. And Africa is no different in this regard. I think the second takeaway that I would like uh, listeners, especially listeners in boards in Africa, is around the ESG issues. I don't believe that many companies are taking issues around ESG as seriously as they should. And unfortunately, for such companies, there are so many developments in the world right now where they're going to require certain mandatory obligations on companies. And so companies will do well to start preparing towards that. As a company, is ESG an issue on your board agenda? As a company, are you dimensioning your ESG risks? Are you keeping the data? Are you still saying global warming is a Western problem and not actually looking at your role with respect to climate change and with respect to greenhouse gas emissions? Are you educating yourself as a board? It's important that companies in Africa get on board with that because they will lose funding if they don't do the appropriate things around ESG issues. And I think for me, the last one is just to say that the regulator is your friend. (laughs) (laughs) Much as I know that a lot of people may not believe that, I think people should engage more with regulators. They have capacity issues just like you. Don't assume that because a regulator uh, looks stern and is the rules and the circulars and the broadcasts and what have you that you have to comply with come from seemingly from on high. You've got to find a way of engaging with your regulator and forcing that relationship. It should be a two-way street. And I tell you, when you do that, you're better able to ensure that the regulatory outcomes have your inputs and therefore they're easier for you to comply while the regulator achieves the remit that they have. 
Thank you. Tino, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for contributing to the Better Bots podcast series. Thank you, Sabine. It's been a pleasure. How can we help you and your board? If you're interested in learning more about our work, please do get in touch. We are also happy to arrange a demo so that you can experience our board evaluation platform. Whatever it is, we at BetterBoards are always delighted to hear from you. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.